we let companies get away with many, many things like this, you know, to the, to the end of like, oh, well, such and such is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to our shareholders. Um, that kind of attitude has given us um, many, many social systemic inequities, you know, of which the loss of privacy is only one. It's just totally absurd. <laughs> I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today I'm hosting a very special guest, Allison Macrina, someone who's a bit different from some of the people that I've hosted previously. Allison works as the community team lead at the Tor Project. The Tor Project primarily maintains the Tor anonymity network, which allows users to browse the internet while preserving their privacy. Tor is decentralized by design, utilizing a principle called onion routing, and they have nodes all over the world. Allison's also the founder of the Library Freedom Project, which helps educate librarians about the importance of privacy and gives them resources to help organize and educate their communities. On this episode, Allison and I discuss how the Tor network protects its users, how preserving privacy is essential to human freedom, the relationship between decentralization and privacy, the dangers of growth at all costs, and also why she's skeptical of many of the people and projects in the blockchain space. This episode is one of my favorites, and it's really representative of the conversation that we're trying to have with Decentralize This. Decentralizing the world, building sustainable systems that work for real humans, these are really challenging tasks, and it's much more than just blockchain or cryptocurrency. I hope that Allison teaches you as much as she taught me in this conversation. So without any further introduction, here is Allison Macrina. Allison, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Decentralize This. I am honored to be able to talk with you. I'm really happy to be here. So we start every show the same way. Just take a second, professionally, personally. Uh, who are you, Allison? I am an activist working on making the internet um, safe for regular human beings. I work on the Tor Project, where I'm the community team lead, and I'm the director of the Library Freedom Project. That's awesome. And a lot of our listeners probably have heard of the Tor Project. They might not be as familiar with the Library Freedom Project, but I imagine that a lot of them would have questions about what exactly uh, all of these projects try to achieve, because sometimes it's in the news, uh, sometimes it's it's getting coverage in mainstream media outlets where I feel like they don't do a great job portraying what what Tor is actually trying to achieve. So let's let's start by maybe talking about the Tor project. Uh, how does it work? Why does it work? What's it trying to achieve? Just let's give everybody like a crash course in in Tor. Not me, of course. This is going to be super <laughs> confusing for the next, like, whatever minutes, but let, let's try to focus. Tor Project is an organization uh, where we build technology for human rights. Um, our main piece of software, our flagship software, is called the Tor Browser. It's a web browser that you can download for free. And when you use Tor Browser, nobody can see the websites that you visit. 
nobody knows where in the world you're really coming from. And so in that way, it protects you against both surveillance and censorship. That's an awesome mission. And I, I know that a lot of people in our audience, if they're following our project, are, are definitely very concerned with issues of data privacy and personal privacy. Why, why is that important? Like, why do you personally believe that privacy is a human right? Well, if you take away people's uh, privacy, whether it's, um, you know, deliberate, if they're targeted um, by surveillance or whether people feel that their privacy is violated, it's very hard to exercise other fundamental human rights. For example, um, people can't really have intellectual freedom or freedom of speech if they don't if they if they feel like they don't have any privacy because the feeling of being watched is something that contributes to self-censorship. You're not going to read, write, research, speak freely if you feel like um, some adversary is paying attention to what you're doing. I think this is an especially important thing to fight for in our current era because we um, we do everything online. Um, the internet is um, there's no such thing as. IRL and online, you know, the internet is real life. Um, we really never log off. And the way that the internet is right now increasingly is dominated by a handful of very powerful companies and also, um, governments who, uh, you know, work in conjunction with those companies and data is a hot commodity. It's, uh, something that, um, you know, most internet companies use to um, get advertisers to pay for their products. And so um, the the loss of privacy is very lucrative to some very powerful interests. Yeah, some of the some of what these larger organizations are doing, right? The, the argument that I keep hearing is, you know, it wasn't like done to us. It was just, you know, it was in pursuit of a business model. And that's capitalism, right? Like, they they didn't know that they were really potentially destroying the fabric of society by doing this. It was just, you know, good business. I don't think that's a very convincing argument for people anymore. So what do you think what do you think of these arguments when when companies kind of say that like privacy is not their primary responsibility? Do you think that has like any grain of truth to it? No, I I think they're full of shit. I mean, I don't think they I think that they they know very well, um, first of all, you know, the idea that they're just thinking about their bottom line and there are all these unintended consequences. I mean, that's not a good defense anyway, but I also just don't believe it. Um, I also think that um, we, we, we let companies get away with many, many things like this, you know, to the, to the end of like, oh, well, such and such is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to our shareholders. Um, that kind of attitude has given us, um, many, many social systemic inequities, you know, of which the loss of privacy is only one. And so, you know, the idea that we let companies just do whatever we want with our data uh, without any consequence, and we let them get away with saying, "Well, it's not our responsibility." It's just totally absurd. <laughs> so, do you think part of the problem is just that data is so intangible, right? Like, if somebody was coming to your house and they were taking all your stuff and they were walking out with your TV, I'm sure somebody would notice. But the fact that this is data, right, something that we kind of passively create just by our existence, 
Do you think that makes it hard for people to grasp what's happening when that same data is being misused, exploited, or just, you know, not being kept secure? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, part of what has created an environment where we think of data as like not having um, like a corporate reality or whatever, it doesn't have not something tangible. Um, internet companies have um, reinforced that idea by making their products behave in ways that um, encourage us to contribute our data to them, to make them work better, to make them more interesting. Um, and I think most insidiously, um, to make ourselves more addicted to them. Um, so I think, yeah, I think people are only starting to come around to the idea that data does have a physical nature. I mean, not just that we should think about it the way that we think about physical objects, but also that it very much like data lives on servers, which are real places, which consume real energy, which are, you know, contributing to climate change, which are really, um, you know, data is, is really like the contents of our brain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that is becoming a more normal concept, but it's taken a long time for us to get there. Let me ask you something, and maybe for us this is this is maybe a bit of a straw man, but I've certainly heard the argument, you know, at least from some people, maybe they're in government and this is why I hear it, but you know, why do you need privacy if you have nothing to hide? Right? Like that yeah. that that gets thrown around. Like I know that like maybe that's like maybe artificially reducing that side of the argument a little too much, but maybe maybe just react to that kind of phrase. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, either those people are cops or they have no imagination, you know, because it's so you can so quickly, so swiftly um, dismantle that argument um, from anyone who actually believes it by asking them for their credit card numbers or for their social security number. Or if you want to be really bold, you know, ask them why they're wearing clothes. I mean, the idea that people don't have any, you know, that people have nothing to hide. Everybody has something to hide. And we make decisions about our privacy constantly. You know, we choose to have curtains on our windows and we get to decide whether they're open or closed. We walk outside, put clothes on. We don't tell people our medical conditions or the contents of our bank accounts or whatever. I think that what people, if people do actually believe that, I think what they're trying to say is, I'm not doing anything wrong, and so why should I care about, um, you know, hiding certain things from, for example, law enforcement or whatever? And this, to me, comes from a position of privilege, um, considering that, um, you know, there are many, many examples currently and historically of people who are not doing anything wrong who come under the scrutiny of very powerful actors anyway. And also sometimes people are doing things that are quote unquote wrong, but are determined to be wrong um, because they are upsetting to the status quo, you know? Um, so, you know, civil disobedience, for example, is wrong because it's illegal. Um, but like who makes the decision about what's wrong and what's the, you know, what's the goal of making something wrong? So it's, it's just so much more complex to say, oh, I'm not, you know, I have nothing to hide. Um, those people are telling you where they fit into society when they tell you that. Yeah. And that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point around privilege. Just, you know, we think about 
privacy, I think, a little differently than somebody in Saudi Arabia might. And I, I can't speak for the majority of our listening audience, but I assume most of them are in fairly privileged positions themselves. I think that only recently have these kind of privacy issues come to the forefront in, in the mainstream media anyways in, in the US. But these have been issues that I've been seeing people talk about for years, especially in you know, countries and parts of the world where there are much more oppressive governments. And you're like, well, well, why wasn't I reading about that? Well, you weren't reading about it because they have oppressive governments. Right. So now that people are paying attention in the U.S., I mean, <laughs> what what should they be thinking about? What, the, what should they be doing? Like, how do we stop people from thinking like, oh, this is a problem for other people and not me? Something that, that needs to happen, and it's hard to, to tell exactly how this should go, because I think there could be a few different ways and it could turn out well. Um, but I think the first thing is that we have to reckon with the role of technology in our lives and how much we have put trust in um, these private companies who have no, who are beholden to us in no way and are accountable to us in no way. And I'm talking about companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, who, um, you know, some of them, they're only, um, the, the only like currency they trade in is data. Some of them, they do more than that. Um, but we have, as a society decided for whatever reasons that we trust these companies, we give them all this information about ourselves. And I'm, and I'm not, let me be clear. I'm not putting the blame entirely on like people or users. Um, but I think that it is true that we have to think about like, well, why have we trusted these companies so much? And, um, they've repeatedly violated that trust. I mean, Facebook alone, you know, think about how many scandals, ethical nightmares that Facebook has been involved in and what, what kind of accountability have we seen from them? Almost nothing. So the first thing is that, you know, we have to figure out like, um, why we're so willing to give up all of our information to these companies that don't care about us. And then the next thing is, um, figuring out a way to, um, to break up their monopolies. Um, and so, you know, that is, that requires a set of political solutions um, that there's a lot of debate around, you know, like we want regulation, but then at the same time, we don't want the government to have that data that has just come from the private companies. Um, you know, we, we should break these companies up so they're not so powerful, but since they're so big and so powerful, how do you even start to break them up? Like breaking Facebook into, for example, Instagram and Tinder and WhatsApp, like those are still enormously powerful companies on their own. So what do you even do? Um, but I think that, you know, at least having the starting point of recognizing that these are not our friends and we have to have a kind of adversarial oppositional attitude towards them that puts us, the people in control of our data. Um, I think if we start from there, we can get to a, a pretty good place. <laughs> and you're making a lot of great points, but I want to ask you what we would do. Uh, let me let me give you a situation because I have a lot of friends who still work in big tech, you know, and I've worked in big tech and I've been a data scientist in big tech. So I've seen some of how this data kind of gets misused and mishandled firsthand. What what do you tell somebody who's working at Facebook right now who might have liked their job and is now kind of watching the world burn around them in a sense where now, you know, maybe they, they joined a little bit after all of these systems were well, you know, into their second decade of existence. 
And now they're having to reckon with this, the fact that people are now figuring out what's been happening to their data for all of these years. But they're just people at a company, you know, and a company is really just made up of people. What should somebody who currently works at Facebook or Google or any of these other places, like what can they do, do I mean, beyond just quit, uh, but what can they do maybe internally to be starting to help things? Do you think there's anything they can do? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think is that I would never call them just people because just people have, you know, the the power of just people is how we have any kind of power, um, you know, and it starts with some individuals who decide that um, enough is enough, you know, whatever that is for them. So I think that the first thing is to recognize that they actually do have a tremendous amount of power, even just being an employee in one of these companies and seeing that something is wrong. Um, from there, I think, um, you know, yeah, beyond just quitting, which is, you know, can be powerful, but, um, there may be some other things that I would suggest that they do first. You know, one is, um, I think that something that we've seen that has been pretty tremendous in the last couple of years is tech workers at these companies standing up, um, to the company using the, the power that they have as, um, workers in those companies to stand up to the company's policy on something. Um, so, you know, we saw all the walkouts that happened at Google against, um, you know, how many, um, uh, abusive men have been protected by the company for years. Um, so that was a really amazing example of tech workers standing up to the power of their, you know, company or whatever. Uh, we saw the same thing happen in a few different places, Microsoft, Google, um, standing up to their company's um, participation in, um, uh, you know, like military projects. Um, um, so I think uh, that is something that I would encourage tech workers to do is to um, work together with other tech workers to campaign in some way publicly against, um, the way that your company has behaved unethically. Um, and an another suggestion is, and this is definitely riskier, but is really, really needed. Um, if they are witnessing in particular, some, um, injustice, help get it brought to light, blow the whistle on it, go tell a journalist about it. Um, that's something that, um, you know, had, if, if not for amazing whistleblowers, um, working in tech companies, working with this kind of data, we wouldn't know about, for example, the whole Cambridge Analytica, uh, Analytica scandal, if not for, uh, Christopher Wiley, who blew the whistle on that. So those are the two main things I would suggest. And if they are, if, if neither of those are possible for whatever reason, then yeah, you should quit because you're, if you're not doing anything, if you're working for those companies and you're just taking home a paycheck, I'm sorry to tell you, but you are complicit. Um, and so you, um, if you're going to quit though, you should, um, publicly tell people why you're quitting. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful statement to make, right. Is leaving one of these companies, but it's only powerful if you can articulate why, and it's only powerful in your next actions, I suppose. And when I left big tech, um, you know, I moved into this blockchain slash decentralization space, hoping to find companies and people and projects that were at least aligned with my personal missions. 
And I'm fortunate enough to have found one, and I know a lot of people who have left those companies only to get sucked back into other large companies that are facing all the same issues, but maybe not reckoning with them on a global scale and getting dragged in front of Congress yet. I should say yet. Well, then, then they can blow the whistle on those companies and hasten the. And they just might. And they yeah. just might. Every time I refresh the news, I feel like you know it, it could be mm-hmm. literally any name because this is just mm-hmm. the nature of the the internet's business model these days. Not the internet itself, but anybody who's built an application on top of it. That's and, right. And what I'm going to ask you is, you know, is this a threat to any kind of centralized organization? these days or like like is this something inherent to centralization where if you, if you concentrate enough power eventually it corrupts or or is this something is this something else that maybe was encouraged by the way that the internet is structured somehow like is it, is it more structural or or what what are we looking at like to understand how to fix it we got to understand the problem right no i think it is i think that centralization of power is a is a huge part of of why it's so corrupted i mean it's not the structure of the internet because the structure of the internet fundamentally is decentralized as you know mm-hmm. um the um yeah i th- i mean it's my personal and political beliefs that like you can't have power at that concentration without it corrupting um you know the impetus for growth to just keep pursuing um more and more i mean like Facebook's model of basically like global domination, mm-hmm. had they been, um, you know, thinking about how that would work as a, as a decentralized project. I mean, there are many things that are compelling to me about the idea of decentralization, um, technically and, and on a human level, um, you know, the, the human side of it is like, can you, could if you if you have a company that like provides a service that's something like Facebook and you don't um, concentrate power and wealth and status in a few people, mm. um, are you going to end up in a situation where they're behaving so unethically? Because it you know if you decentralize it, then you're accountable to so many more people, and you just don't even have you wouldn't even have the ability to um, to like. Uh, you know, d- to do something at that scale. I mean, maybe it's naive, right? Because we haven't seen that play out. Like we don't have a project where we can compare, but it just seems to me like, um, you know, the, f- the fundamental issues here are that um, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg like have designs on global power. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, I actually think is kind of an idiot. Um, and I don't, I'm not giving him a pass, but I think he like, I don't know what he's motivated by. Um, Sheryl Sandberg is a is a real like political actor though, and so I think that she has a political vision about like you know like taking power. That if Facebook were a decentralized project, there would be no no possibility for her to do that. You know, so yeah. But it's it's an interesting thought experiment. I would love to see <laughs> um, a project even you know come close so that we can test out if that's true or if humans are just irredeemable and we we have no hope. <laughs> well, hopefully we do find out. So this is a good transition into something I do want to get into a little bit more deeply, which is the relationship between technologies, like new technologies and decentralization. And I think a good place to start there is talking about some ways in which Tor itself is decentralized and how that helps it in its mission. 
Yeah. So the whole, um, design of Tor is basically, um, is to be as decentralized as possible. Um, one of the design components where you see that the most is in the, uh, relay system. So Mm -hmm. basically this is how Tor works. So, um, let's say that you are a Tor user, you open up Tor browser. So you've got the Tor client open in front of you and you're going on your websites and nobody knows where in the world you are. The way that that is able to happen is because when you connect to Tor, what you're actually doing is you're getting assigned a circuit of a randomly assigned circuit of three relays for every website that you visit. Um, these relays are just computers that are configured to forward traffic. That's all they do. And each one of them. And so the circuit, um, you know, will forward traffic from the first relay to the second relay and finally to the exit relay. And that's the one that takes you to your destination website. Each of those relays only has the information that it needs to proceed to the next step. Mm -hmm. And so the first relay knows who you are. It knows who the second relay is, but it doesn't know the exit relay and it doesn't know the destination website. And it, and it, each relay works the same way. The second one knows the first, it knows the third, it doesn't know you and it doesn't know your destination. So each one, they, you know, they work together in a system, um, to protect, um, an adversary from correlating like you to the website you're visiting. So these relays are, um, part of the fundamental decentralized design of the Tor network because they're run by volunteers all over the world. Um, there are, gosh, I don't know how many relays in the network now. I think it's around 7,000. Um, And basically we have a bunch of different safeguards in place to make sure that one person or entity is not controlling too many of those relays because then we would have to basically distrust them because they would control too much of the network. Um, And so that is really fundamental to how we make Tor. That's so fascinating. And I think a lot of people who don't know how Tor works – are probably going to go and try to dig this up now. And, and I guess the hope would be that they run their own relayers, right? Like how can people get involved with the Tor project? Absolutely. We, we always need more relays, um, especially people who, um, you know, I mean, if you are interested in decentralization, especially as a technical concept, like I think to me, it's one of the most interesting ways that um, that is playing out at a scale. Um, more relays mean that the network will be more stable. Um, it'll be faster. Um, it's just like a total, like, I mean, it, it helps us so much when people run relays, if people don't have the technical capacity to run relays, that's fine. Um, we're actually running our donation campaign right now. So you can go to donate.torproject.org and that will help, you know, um, keep up this like, you know, amazing decentralized project. Um, and then also you can do both. You can run a relay and you can donate too, if you want. Yeah, nobody should feel like they're prohibited from doing both because they've done the other. Absolutely. <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. Now, I, what I want to talk with you about, though, is is not necessarily just the ways in which Tor is decentralized, but a, a lot of the other guests we've had on this podcast. And, and at this point in time, you're a pretty unique guest, although that's not the intent going forward. Um, most of them are coming from projects that are in the blockchain space specifically. And the promise of blockchain was that it was going to be this decentralized technology uh, in, in the context of Bitcoin. It was going to enable a, a decentralized financial system that wasn't beholden to governments or banks and all of these other things. 
Yeah, it may have gotten off track a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, and if you've been keeping track, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. And like any technology or like any organization, it's not immune to the pressure of uh, egos and regulation and all these other things. And I think what gets lost a lot of the time now is some of the core principles that were behind some of the decentral decentralization movement originally. And a lot of people who have come into the space are are just really not familiar with a lot of decentralized technologies if they don't involve a blockchain, which is really weird for me to think about and probably for you. But a lot of people listening to this um, think blockchain is decentralized and might not understand how like Tor or even something like torrents work. Um, What's your take? And feel free to be as diplomatic or non-diplomatic as you like. But what is your take on like blockchain right now? Just just the even the just the word. I mean, the word at this point, I think, is pretty cringy. You know, I mean, I, I think that you I think that you're right that like it's become something like if there was a meaningful like kind of vision behind it that had to do with like how people wanted technology to function and who they wanted it to be beholden to. I mean, to me, it seems like that is gone. I mean, at least for the time being, you know, and I, and I'm also like an outsider in this because I've never been involved in the blockchain community. So, you know, if, if I'm wrong that there are like a bunch of people like really like vehemently stuck to the original idea, then I apologize to those people. But I think, I mean, from my point of view as somebody working as a, like a full-time internet activist and paying attention in this space, it seems like most of the people who are like enthusiastic about blockchain now are just trying to make money. Um, and I don't see the, you know, anything that's like, um, you know, motivating kind of political vision. Um, I just don't, I, I don't see it. Well, here's, here's where we get back to your thing about just people, right? Like it's never Mm -hmm. just people. And there's definitely individuals who share that vision, and some of them are caught up in different parts of the space, or some of them are even trying to implement blockchain or other decentralized technologies, let's say, in their traditional organizations. Like they're trying to have some kind of internal blockchain team at a bank. And, you know, maybe they share this vision and like they work at a bank, so there's really just no way for them to really pursue it uh, in the way that you or I might hope they would, which is, you know, outside the context of just pure bottom line profits. I, I'm i wondering, like, if if people in this space really did have that mission and vision in mind, but all they knew was blockchain projects, uh, how can we get them thinking more about the projects that have come before them that really do have that mission and vision that aren't as motivated by profit? Like, it, to me, to me, a lot of it has to do with storytelling, right? And I don't know if you think a lot about how to reach these people, but I can guarantee you as somebody who does work within that space that they're there. They're just not evenly distributed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right about storytelling. I mean, it's certainly something that we do in tour. Um, we try to, um, you know, talk about who tour users are and what their lives are like and why they use tour as a way not just to like give a human face to the many millions of people who use Tor, um, but also to encourage people to work on the project because they care about other humans and they want those humans to have a safe way to access the internet. So in terms of like getting some of the 
ideological blockchain types to care about other like decentralized projects? I mean, I it's it's a it's a good question. I haven't really thought about that, honestly. I mean, my what comes to mind immediately is like um what I would want to know is like, are they feeling disillusioned because they care about this from a political point of view and like, they're not getting that anymore or the space has been taken over by like all these like, you know, like Bitcoin bros or whatever, because if that's how they feel, then like, um, there, I think like there's so much to like the kind of broader, you know, free software community, which is, um, for the most part, I, I think also shares the values of like decentralization or whatever, um, that puts their politics forward that mm-hmm. like makes it clear that they're doing this because they want internet infrastructure that is collectively owned and worked on and that is transparent and that puts user privacy first and, you know, puts human rights first and all these things. Um, you know, uh, but the discoverability part, I think, is the challenging thing because yeah. these are kind of niche communities. I don't want to say niche. I mean, they're they're big. They're really big. I mean, especially like Latin America, free software is huge. Um, but it's the sort of thing like you kind of don't find it until you're looking for it sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, no, so, you're yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's it is a challenge. People get very caught up in the thing that they know and that they've seen. And it's also a very young space. You know, a lot of people who are in the blockchain space are are people who have owned like a Bitcoin, but have never owned a stock. You're, mm. you're talking. So it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity in that these people don't come in with a bunch of preconceived notions about how the world should be organized or, you know, what should come first, principles or profit. And I think that that's really exciting. But I, I want to ask you something else here, which is, you know, I, I think part of the problem is that a lot of the people who have come into the decentralization space in the last few years from the context of blockchain put blockchain at the center. They're really determined to f- find a way to make a blockchain useful. They really like blockchains. And then they expand and it's like, okay, but, you know, you keep asking why. Is a blockchain in service of decentralization? Sure. So maybe decentralization is what you care about, not blockchain. Well, but why do you care about decentralization? Maybe you care about decentralization because you're passionate about privacy or you're passionate about distributing power fairly and and having sustainable systems. I mean, there's just so many ways that you can get back to principles, but um, it doesn't always happen, right? (laughs) You don't don't always get back to principles if you get too caught up in the tech. How, how How do we get the conversation, you know, about all of this? Because I think Tor has this problem problem as well how do we get the conversation to be back around principles and and not so much the the specifics of the technology or how it might be misused let's say well in tour that's kind of i mean basically like making it about our principles and why we make tour is at the forefront of everything we do i mean especially in the last few years we're really um a mission-driven non-profit organization and so i think that you see that reflected in, in all of our work. I mean, the technology, um, can't, it doesn't exist without the mission. Um, so, you know, for us, like we're, we're, our mission is about, um, you know, like giving people in the world access to, um, 
to technology that respects their human rights. I'm paraphrasing our mission because I don't have it memorized, but there's all those words are in there, right? <laughs> um, we're just thinking constantly about um, what that means in practice. And so um, some of what it means is like, we need to make sure that the network is like robust and safe for people to use. So the decentralization part comes into that. Um, we want many different kinds of users um, and many different kinds of operators and um, people contributing code and other kinds of you know documentation and other contributions. And that's another kind of you know way to think about the decentralization thing because if we only have like um, you know, white boy hackers from Western Europe and the U.S. and Canada, um, that's not a decentralized project, you know, right. because that is concentrating a specific kind of power in specific places. And it's only one set, you know, a ver very narrow set of experiences. And so it's not going to be we're not going to be able to make tour work for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, we we achieve this by being a mission driven organization in terms of um doing that for others. I mean, the, the blockchain problem that you, that you identify is really hard, I think, because you're talking about people who've come into the space, a lot of people, because they like heard about this like flashy new thing that can make them a bunch of money. And to get to the, um, the principles part of it is I think way harder from there for mm. us. It's like, we're, we put it at the, you know, it's like, at the heading of everything. Oh you yeah. Know? It's on your front page. Um, it's in your mission statement. Yeah. Like I, I know that it's yeah. central to everything. And I know, I, I can't remember the last blockchain project where the first thing I did was land on the front page and it kind of laid out the same sort of stuff, right? That's just, that's just not how they operate. Um, but I yeah. think, but I do think it's a dangerous assumption to say that, you know, you, I don't think it's as big of a process of radicalization as you're making it sound to have somebody who supports one of these projects suddenly become somebody who cares deeply about the mission and values. I almost think that's something that you can sort of Trojan horse uh, mm -hmm. into people, especially because these missions and values are so resonant. Like maybe they didn't understand that they cared, but you can make them see that they did. I don't, th I don't think, I think this is so fundamentally human that it's not a mm -hmm. question of kind of tricking people into believing it. It's just you have to sort of point them inward at at the right moment with the in in the right uh, with enough silence, I suppose, for introspection, where they can see maybe I accidentally did care about the mission and values all along. Maybe blockchain was just was just the thing that opened the door. Yeah, maybe, and you know, I guess it like reflects my like um, ignorance and assumptions about um, who these people are and what they're doing, and so you know, I uh, I look trust until they your, put it on their um, homepage. I don't know that you're wrong. Yeah, well, that's that's it. I mean, so maybe I'm like you know asking for like people to um, like uh, you know put their money where their mouth is or whatever, um, because that is what you look like to the world if you're not doing that. I think that's really valuable feedback coming into the ecosystem from somebody who's, you know, tangential, but obviously not intimately involved with the day to day of like whatever the blockchain space is today. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to ask you about now the library freedom project. Cause this is something else that you're very passionate about that you founded. And I, and I want to know what it is, why you created it, what, what your role in it is now, how it relates to everything else we've been talking about. Library Freedom Project is a very tiny organization that I started to uh, teach librarians about 
ways to bring privacy uh, into like back into libraries and in their local communities. Mm-hmm. The reason I focus on librarians is because they have um, both ethical commitments to privacy because they understand like how necessary it is for things like intellectual freedom. And also because they have a relationship to the public that is without parallel. You can go into a library um, in most communities and um, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to buy anything. You're not um, thought of as a consumer or even as a citizen. It doesn't matter if you pay taxes there, um, Mm -hmm. what your status is, um, you know, in terms of immigration or whatever, you get to just go there and be there. Um, also libraries provide some of the only free computer classes in most communities. And so I saw an opportunity to teach librarians about privacy tools and strategies and the kind of like overarching privacy problem, because they're in a really good position where they can teach other people about it so they can make changes on their computers there. They can teach classes. They can advocate for better privacy protections uh, locally and nationally. So they're um, a really good audience for all this. They're what I like to call, and I know you're saying it's a tiny organization, but I still think it's a very impactful organization potentially because you're targeting what I'm calling like a high leverage uh, individual in society, the librarian, you know, and, and I think there's all kinds of high leverage groups like that that are not necessarily big groups and they don't necessarily run Facebook, but they are extremely valuable and they are integrated into their local communities in the ways that you're saying. Do you think that there's other kinds of like high leverage groups that we should be targeting to help educate them about these issues of privacy or maybe, you know, how decentralized technologies can contribute to protecting privacy and protecting human rights? It's a good question. I think that um, there are – I mean, like when I think about other people who have the kind of similar role, um, you know – maybe like teachers or maybe like social workers. But honestly, I mean, I think that like anybody who is in not even the public sector alone, let me just like work through this thought a little bit. Basically my feeling is that we're bombarded by so much, um, um, advertising so much that is, um, trying to convince us of the, um, like dominant position about, um, sharing our data with private companies. So, you know, um, advertising and a great deal of media that anything that can be, um, uh, any, any like, um, you know, away from keyboard AFK, um, entities that can like provide a kind of reality check on that is good. Um, whether, you know, with some of them, I think it will be, would be harder than others, but like, I don't see any limit to what the possibilities are there. So like, for example, um, you know, we can, um, like if we get, um, healthcare providers to start prioritizing privacy and like understanding what HIPAA actually is and Mm. the limitations to it and how, um, they're like out of date windows XP computers in the hospital are actually like very unsafe for all these reasons. And using this third party software, to, um, to like keep patient data is also unsafe for all these reasons. Um, if we build like competencies among, um, 
all different kinds of service providers, then we can actually counter this multi-billion dollar industry that's trying to convince us otherwise. You feel me? Is this like making sense? It's like a, you know, it's like a thought that I'm. No, we're working through this thought together, right? Like we're, we're taking on the role of educators in this space, right? And we're saying that we need to help, help teach the world. Like, obviously neither of us is saying like that only a few people deserve to be taught about this stuff. Obviously we're saying that this should be kind of universal understanding, and we should be democratizing access to technologies and materials that help people understand the importance of privacy, but also protect their own privacy. And we're just trying to identify like leverage points because it's all about like if if you can start by targeting the right people, maybe this stuff spreads faster. And maybe if you're focusing too much on the wrong people, you just you hit these sticking points, right? There's only so much time in the day. There's only so many resources we have. And as you said, we're competing with an awful lot of noise from an awful lot of people who, again, maybe not consciously, but they're amplifying these messages around, you know, what's important. You know, we're saying it's privacy and, you know, individual rights. And they're saying it's a profit motive or they're saying it's, you know, their own, uh, you know, their own individual employment. And it's just a question of like balancing the conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, it's hard for us to even come close to what looks like a balance when we're up against like the most powerful companies in the world. But, um, we, I think that real life, like meaningful, you know, real life relationships, um, have a lot of meaning and like, Mm. you know, P and, and trust is, um, you know, something that like has an incredible amount of value. And so, um, you know, if we are making privacy a priority in all these spaces that like already have a great deal of trust, like it can build even more. And it's the only way that we can meaningfully counter um, these very powerful industries that want all of our data. So who else is working on this stuff? You know, I know Tor is taking a very um, – they're prioritizing a, a technical approach to this stuff, right? Like technologies that help people protect their own privacy. And Enigma is the same way. But there's a lot of organizations that don't necessarily build technical solutions, right? They're advocates or they're activists. They do um, lobbying essentially. You know, they're, they're trying to make sure at least lawmakers can understand the, the ramifications that their, that their laws have on individual privacy, you know, they they may genuinely, for at least from what I've seen from lawmakers, a lot of them genuinely don't understand what they're doing. So it's it's yeah. it's it's understandable that they might not understand the consequences of their action. So who are some other organizations that you think are doing really good work in that regard? Well, there's the big ones like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They work on policy. They um, sue the government. Um, for, um, you know, for violating our rights, they make technology, they do all kinds of stuff. Um, then there are some organizations that are, their mandate is a little bit more broad than just like thinking about the privacy problem, but they, when they are thinking about privacy and surveillance, they do it really well. So like the ACLU is one, there are some international EFF is international. I should have mentioned that some other international organizations that are really good, um, Privacy International does a lot of great policy work based in Europe. Um, there's um, some more kind of like advocacy, activisty type groups like Tactical Technology Collective. They teach people about protecting their privacy. They put a lot of great resources out to this end. Um, 
who else comes to mind? Um, there's no more in my brain. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's already like good to know that so many organizations have been working on this for so long, right? This is not this is a fight that's gone on at least since the dawn of. I guess what I would call like the modern era of the internet. As soon as soon as these values kind of came under threat, there were already people trying to speak on behalf of the individual, and that work is ongoing. and it, And it's definitely something that I try to follow, and I, I find it to be really admirable and really tough. So, uh, as means of wrapping up, you know, if there's anything else that somebody listening to this would want to do. Um, if they got inspired by hearing you talk about this stuff, and they wanted to just you know, learn more about your work or, or anything else? Like, is there anything else that they can do right away or, or go somewhere they can go to learn more? Uh, well, they can go to uh, Tor Project's website, which is torproject.org. Um, I recommend looking at our blog to see what we've been up to recently. We make new posts uh, constantly, like several per week. And then the Library Freedom Project's website is just libraryfreedomproject.org. You can see what we're doing there. Awesome. I'm going to add all of these links to the podcast description and people uh, can definitely feel free to follow up with all these organizations and all these awesome projects at your leisure. But Allison, thank you so much for appearing today. I really appreciate the conversation. I think that you've got a really valuable perspective uh, on all of this stuff and, and a lot of our audience, it, it might be new to them. And so hopefully you've got some new converts at the end of this. Thanks. It was great talking to you. 